If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. This episode is brought to you by Fiat. A remix just hits different. The 2024 Fiat 500e is no exception. Cruise city streets in style with an all-electric ride that's fully equipped with an available premium JBL audio system. Explore the all-new 2024 Fiat 500e at fiat.com. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SBA, used under license by FCA US LLC. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's podcast, we're speaking about the lives and experiences of Aboriginal Australians after the arrival of white settlers in the 18th century. My guest was the historian Richard Broom, an expert in the history of Indigenous peoples, whose book Aboriginal Australians, A History Since 1788, was published in its fifth edition in 2019. You've spent much of your career researching the experiences of Aboriginal people after the arrival of white settlers in Australia. So I think before we go any further, can you just tell us how many Aboriginal people lived in Australia when the Europeans arrived? And what kind of groups of people does that term Aboriginal encompass? Well, uh, thank you for having me, Ellie. Look, it's uh, an interesting question. Of course, we don't exactly know. So there's really a whole series of guesstimates that have to be made uh, as to how many uh, Indigenous people were here when uh, Europeans arrived. But uh, estimates about 100 years ago were that maybe 300,000 people lived 
in Australia uh, at 1788, but um, more recent work suggests that it was probably between three quarters and one million people. And they were living in about 500 distinct cultural linguistic groups, and that was spread over many uh, diverse ecologies across Australia from coastal, tropical into semi-arids and almost desert country. So a great diversity of experience, probably 500 different languages amongst those people. And in certain areas, people would know the language of their neighbours. They were able, able to converse and trade, and trade often went over a long period of time and a long distances. But um, essentially, very distinct groups on a theme of Aboriginal culture. And of course, in terms of the name, they had names for themselves, they had names for their neighbours, but they didn't really have names for regional areas and certainly not for the whole of Australia because um, their contact was with neighbouring groups. So in fact, the word Aboriginal was given to them by Europeans, meaning the original inhabitants of a country. It's still used these days, of course, with a capital A, um, but increasingly other words are coming in, Indigenous to a degree. Um, First Nations people is is preferred by many uh, Indigenous people, and they also do have regional names for themselves. So there's a massive diversity of names uh, going from their local clan groups to their language group to their regional groups. But as yet, they still haven't devised a name for themselves across Australia that's their word. Mm, interesting. And I think it's important to recognise those distinctions and differences, isn't it? That it's a big group of different people we're talking about here, not one mass. Exactly, exactly. And that took a long time for Europeans to cotton on to. So what can you tell us about the first encounters between Aboriginal Australians and white settlers um, in the late 18th century? But I'm particularly interested in this from the Aboriginal perspective. How did they view the new arrivals? Well, at first with astonishment and puzzlement, I think, because uh, they had no knowledge of the outside world. They had been seafarers to get to Australia from Southeast Asia, although Aboriginal people often would prefer to say they've always been here. But, you know, scientists, Western science thinks that they moved possibly 60,000 to 70,000 years ago in the movement out of Africa and into Asia. And so... Um, they uh, they were here at that time, but they didn't have ongoing contacts with the outside world. So when Europeans arrived in their ships, they were quite astonished by what they saw. And there are skerricks of songs and other stories that show that they were puzzled by this. And at first they were willing to be friendly because I think they had no sense that these people were colonisers. Um, they they had uh, had some contacts with with other other groups, but it was always fleeting or on their own terms. So, I think they had no sense that people would want to come and take their land because their whole view of custodianship was that you only connected to your piece of land. You knew the stories, you knew um, 
the reason for you being there. And, and there was no sense of taking other people's lands because you didn't know the stories. So that the whole notion of colonisation was a puzzlement to them. But after not too long, they, they realised that people were here to stay. They weren't going away and they were starting to desecrate land. They were using land without asking. They were chopping down trees without asking, setting fires, etc. So um, hostility grew uh, within a short period of time and then in, uh, they wished to avoid them if they could, but if, if they, there was an encounter, often it became hostile. Was violence the main way that Aboriginal people resisted white settlement? At first, yes, in many situations. But once they saw the inevitability of the of the people before them and that weren't going to go, they started to deal with them and, for instance, tried to in, involve them in their kinship system. So Aboriginal people often ask Europeans for names. Now, the name in Aboriginal society is an extremely important thing in fact, we know uh, even today that names of deceased people are not mentioned. And so the name is a very powerful kinship uh, signifier. And so if you got a European to give you a name, and, and where there's many, many instances of them requesting this, then what they were doing were trying to create a relationship with these newcomers and to do and by doing so to control them. So they they tried cultural means to control the newcomers. Um, they traded with them. They began to work for them uh, as guides, uh, as uh, helping them to pioneer uh, their pastoral runs. And, uh, and later they worked as um, stockmen and cattle workers on, on, and, sh- and sheep uh, and shepherds on, on, the, uh, on the run. So they tried to engage in a whole range of ways um, that were indicating they were trying to adapt and attach themselves to these powerful newcomers because the Europeans very quickly outnumbered Aboriginal people in any one local area um, and they had uh, firearms, which were at first ineffective but still somewhat scary. They had horses uh, after after a period of time so they were, were quite powerful and therefore they had to be careful how they dealt with them but there there was violent attacks in most areas in Australia where Aboriginal people just saw they needed to defy these um these people there's a somewhat outdated I guess now assumption isn't there that it's harder to write the histories of Indigenous peoples you know whether it's in America whether it's in Australia because there's fewer sources, fewer written sources available. Is that fair in the Australian context? Well, not really, because um, there are enormous amount of sources. Now, at first, they're, of course, obscured from a white perspective. But historians, if they're careful and sensitive, can sort of, in a sense, read between the lines. And there were some very sympathetic observers in the, in the settlement in early Sydney, which, which was a convict settlement, which started in 1788, the, the officers of the First Fleet were often quite enlightened gentlemen, and um, about half a dozen of them wrote uh, journals, many of which were published later in England, and they had quite a sensitive um, attitude to Aboriginal people. They were interested in Aboriginal culture and what these people were doing and how they did it. So they wrote a lot about them. And then, of course, later, 
as um, the management of Aboriginal people became more organised and we had Aboriginal protectors were created um, and missionaries came, they created their own journals and daily diaries about what they were seeing and experiencing and even conversations they were having with Aboriginal people. So actually we've got a very rich record from these sources. And then once the government gets involved, um, they create um, you know, a whole system of, of um, managing Aboriginal people, so-called protecting them, and that creates reports and local missionaries write things. And so there's an, a wealth of material. But by the mid-19th century, Aboriginal people start writing letters. They've become literate and they start protesting. We want some land back. Why can't we do this? Um, why do we have? Why have you taken my child? And so um, we have their voices by about the 1850s, and that is constant thereafter. I think we'll return to that slightly later history in a moment. But before we do, I just want to re- uh, return to something that you said a little bit ago, where you said that many Aboriginal people started working with or for white settlers. And I just wanted, wondered if you could tell us about the role that Aboriginal people played in white settlement, because, of course, Australia was quite an inhospitable environment, if you didn't know it, if you arrived in the late 18th century. Exactly, yes. Look, they provide an enormous amount of skilled but unpaid labour. At, at first, they were sometimes paid and they, they demanded pay, but once um, Aboriginal acts were put into place um, on many of the frontiers, that controlled Aboriginal labour as well. And so it gave the pastoralists who used their labour a great deal of power over them. And so many of them worked uh, for nothing uh, on cattle stations. But they early on didn't have a great deal of um, desire for for money or use of money. More important to them was that they were left alone. And what happened, particularly in the northern cattle stations up in the Northern Territory and Western Australia, pastoralists would use Aboriginal labour, but they didn't try to change these people, unlike missionaries. So as long as the men from the camp turned up for work each day on the station, they were very happy um, not to interfere with them, not to try and missionise them, not to try and change their culture. And in the wet season, which occurred up in the north of Australia, they often said, okay, you fellas, go off for three months and and turn up for work when the wet season's over. They often gave them some food to get them started. So that allowed Aboriginal people to um, still retain culture, conduct their ceremonies, live off country for three months and go back to cattle work, which they began to enjoy because it was a new way of showing manhood. When the warrior culture isn't allowed anymore by the government, um, doing horse work uh, was very dangerous and daring and and made them feel uh, like men. So, And even women did this work too. So they embraced cattle work and yet they didn't get paid for it. So it was unjust but it allowed them to retain their culture. Mm. Well, let's talk then about um, the missionary aspect of settlement and attempts to, quote, civilise Aboriginal people. You call um, this a 
mixed missionary blessing. What do you mean by that? The early missions did provide refuge um, from the most severe of frontier conditions where there was settler violence against them, where um, finding uh, a living was much harder when settlers were continually pushing you off country, when they were interfering with uh, um, your natural foodstuffs. For instance, the sheep ate out the most valuable vegetable of Aboriginal people, the amdaisy. And so it was, it was hard on the frontier. And so missions provided refuge for Aboriginal people. Um, and yet the trade-off was that they were constantly trying to change them, trying to missionise them, trying to civilise them, uh, tried to settle them down into, um, into uh, sedentary life in huts and, and to make farmers of them. And so um, that was, you know, a double-edged sword for Aboriginal people. But um, they came to have a very good relationship with many missionaries um, and it was a very paternal one. It was a, a one-sided one. But Aboriginal people had some power in that relationship because when you create a paternal relationship with someone, uh, and we all know those of us who have children, um, that uh, they generate their own ways of finding some power and having leverage against the father or mother figure. So um, Aboriginal people, we shouldn't see them as entirely victims. In any situation, they are able to find a way to retain culture as best they could, uh, to retain some freedoms. I wonder if you could give us some examples of that. Where do we see Aboriginal agency in situations like missions or or kind of oppressive systems? Well, um, one of the first uh, farm settlements, it wasn't an official mission, but it was a government station in Victoria, it was called Corrandirk. The government hadn't had an Aboriginal policy for 10 years in the 1850s, so they, they realised something had to be done the Aboriginal population had plummeted by 80% in the, by the 1850. So in 20 years, a 20, 80% loss was devastating. The government felt they needed to do something. But also Aboriginal people through that period were continually saying, we want some land back. We want some land back. And going and, and meeting with government ministers. Uh, and so by 1860, from those two forces the people were uh, got a coronder reserve near Healesville outside Melbourne and they embraced it as their own. Uh, it was to be a farming community, but they became very good at it. And a, a very enlightened manager who was there for the first 10 years told them, if you may success of this, you can keep this land. It'll be your land. And they they took that on board. And so they became agents in the sense of their own destiny by uh, farming well, and he let them have autonomy over the work each day. And when when some fellas might misbehave, they had their own little court to see what the punishment might be. So they were able to extract a significant amount of autonomy. And when the protection board then decided they were going to shut this down in about 30 years later, they marched on Melbourne's twice and met with not the protection board over them, but they went straight to the Premier of the state, got an audience with him and impressed him so much that he made Corrandirk a permanent reserve which couldn't be shut down by the board. 
So you could see that they were able to use the strategies and techniques of European politics um, and European language to put their case and to be successful in it. Now, eventually, you know, Corinda gets closed down 40 years later, um, although now it's back in Aboriginal hands. So in a sense, in the long haul, um, they're... Uh, their efforts to get control over their own lives is having good outcomes after lots of bumps and, and ups and downs through their colonial history. One of the things that I was most intrigued to read about in your book were Aboriginal attitudes to white culture, because there were a lot of aspects of European culture that didn't really make sense or appeal to Aboriginal people. I wonder if you could give some examples. Yeah, well... Um, Missionaries would uh, would talk to them, for instance, about Christianity, and they'd they'd find this quite perplexing that this powerful person was a young baby. You know, they talked a lot about Jesus, but you know, he's just a baby, and so they found that um, quite perplexing. They also were totally unimpressed by the the word, and they would sometimes argue with missionaries and say, "Well, how can this?" this be um, when they might be told about the virgin birth or they might be told about the trinity, you know, and so they, they'd argue back um, and they really adhered to their own um, religion and spirituality for a long, long time, although today in Australia many Aboriginal people are Christians, but it's a synthetic Christianity because they're blended with spiritual beliefs about country. Uh, and so they've made it their own. Uh, but for a long time, they would argue with settlers too, and, and they were quite scornful of settlers in a way because they'd say to, to Europeans, well, they'd see their huts and they'd say, how do you make glass? And the pastor would say, well, I don't know. And, and how do you make this? Or how do you make a metal button? And they wouldn't get a clear answer. And so they found this quite astonishing because they themselves knew how to make everything they used. Something you mentioned earlier was reserves, which I think a lot of people outside of Australia might not be familiar with that system. What can you tell us about reserves and what life was like on them? Yeah, well, the Europeans, uh, as we've said before, wanted to change Aboriginal people, Christianise them, settle them down. And the way they saw that was that they should place them on reserves, uh, teach them the sedentary life, a farming life, and to work um, and to have a sense of the work ethic, which Europeans had. So uh, these were created around Australia by the various state administrations, and there's a great diversity in how rigid they were or how um, uh, easygoing they were. One problem was there was never enough managers or never enough um, state officials to make sure that on every Aboriginal reserve things um, were done as they wanted. So Aboriginal people could resist uh, the manager's directions. There were always secret places or that you could hide on the reserve or you could, you could go into the bush and, and still do ceremony and culture because on the reserve they were told, learn English, don't think about those traditional ways, don't wear, wear those ornaments or beads, you know, you dress like Europeans, think like Europeans. That was the aim. 
um, but they always found ways of um, of avoiding that to a degree. But the reserves were at times quite oppressive because uh, children could be taken from you and put into dormitories on the reserves. Uh, they could even be taken, um, this is from the late 19th century, taken from Aboriginal people and placed into uh, homes where they would be trained in domestic service and then the aim was that they would be put out to white employers and therefore begin to be absorbed into the European society and that would bring an end to Aboriginal culture, Aboriginal uh, identity. And uh, so, but there is a great diversity. So we're talking about a long history of in of incarceration in reserves here, going really 100 years over about seven different state jurisdictions. Um, some states um, are starting it as the other states are getting rid of it. But um, the last sort of control reserve life is in Queensland in the 1960s and 70s. It's quite late then. It is late, um, but, it, but Victoria had got rid of it pretty much um, 30 years earlier. So uh, we're looking at a federation here and Aboriginal policy is different in each state. They tend to copy each other, but um, they're coming at, at a different timeline because uh, for people, you know, that don't know Australian colonisation well, it was the east and south of Australia that was colonised first and the north, the Northern Territory, the, the distant frontiers of Western Australia weren't colonised for another 60 or 70 years later. So you've got this um, disjuncture uh, where some uh, states are managing Aboriginal people in completely different ways to the other states because of time differences. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. These days I'd need a, a warehouse to, um, to, to put the, the books and the articles and all the material and the government reports that have been produced about Aboriginal society. And sometimes Aboriginal people get a bit sick of this. They say they're too much studied and there is a real push now um, for them to have much more control in what research is done with them. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging 
so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. When we're talking about reserves and um, Aboriginal protection boards, um, as they were called, what kind of restrictions and controls could they place on people's lives? I wonder if you could just go into a bit more detail on that. Well, it could be fine-grained um, because they they could uh, put you to work without pay on reserves. They could um, inspect your houses, just walk in and look at them to see if you're doing the right thing in terms of keeping clean and making your bed and all this sort of thing. They could remove your children and put them into a dormitory on the reserve or in another place to be trained as a domestic servant or a rural worker. Um, They could, you know, if you uh, transgressed, there was, particularly in Queensland, there were courts on the reserve and the the uh, policeman was the manager, the judge was the manager, and the jury was the manager. So they were, as they call in Australia, kangaroo courts where there was no justice to people. So um, they could control mail. They, they could do virtually anything they wanted in, in the worst of jurisdictions. Um, in other parts, the, the local policeman might be the sort of manager who turned up and and his control was less. So it was a very diverse system. But um, for Aboriginal people, uh, it was a very bitter time, although the sort of shining uh, light on the cloud was that it was they had a place to be that was their place. And so they often grew affectionate towards the reserves because it was where they were born. Um, it was where their family were. It was where their kin and, and friends were. So there was this sort of really a double view of it that many of them held. But uh, their, their main desire was to get free of controls of over them. Something else that I wanted to ask you about was that elsewhere in your research, you've looked at um, Aboriginal boxers and rodeo performers, which is very intriguing. Why are they so illuminating to study and what what can we learn from their experiences about aboriginal agency yeah well i got interested very early on in 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 aboriginal boxes because i my first piece of research in this whole area was about jack johnson the black american boxer who won the first black white uh world title fight in sydney in 1908 and i wrote about that and then i started to teach aboriginal history and i thought I wonder what uh, the experiences was for Aboriginal boxers. I knew that there were some. So I started to do research. I started to do oral history with um, Aboriginal men who'd boxed with their trainers and gym managers. 
and uh, found that there was this whole world um, in two tiers. One was a, a world of amateur boxing that operated in travelling tent shows that went round all the agricultural shows and country shows that were held across uh, East and, and other parts of Australia. And these men um, travel with the, the shows. And what I found was that they got equal pay. The pay was on merit, not on race. And they were valued because they added that edge to the boxing competitions where the troop would come to town and they'd get all the fellas in the town to have a, have a, a few rounds in, in the tent with them. And, of course, um, Australia being still a, a very racialised country, um, a combat between black and white had all the interests that got people into the show. So they were key performers and um, they actually, their memories are they really enjoyed the whole experience of being the travelling shows. They got to move off the reserves. They were young blokes all together. It was a bit like being in the army. When they turned up to a town, some of the girls thought they were pretty fabulous, and so they went out with the young women uh, across racial lines. And, and if they went to the local picture show, where often there was a bit of a caste barrier, Aboriginal people had to sit, you know, in the cheap seats, and they shouldn't go anywhere else. They'd sometimes sit with their boxing white mates in in the better seats and wouldn't be challenged. So it was quite a liberating experience for them. And so I think this is just another instance where we shouldn't see people as simply victims of colonisation, um, but they were agents too, and they were sort of, I guess, voyaging into the new world that was confronting them and, ex and experiencing it. And it's the same with people that were in the Rodeo circuit. They got to travel the country, um, they, they won prizes, uh, and they did well, and they had great reputations, many of them. So I got interested in this whole area of, of entertainment because the boxing tents were more entertainment, but then there was those who made it into the ring and something like 30% of Australian champions between about 1920 and 1980 were Aboriginal people, yet they were less than 3% of the population. So they showed their dominance, as they're now doing in football, in Australian rules football, um, there's um, a great overrepresentation of Aboriginal people in the top football sides. They're making big money. They're, they're getting great applause from the crowds in most instances, but there has been a few very awful cases of, of, of racism within the AFL football code. Um, and so um, I think society's trying to do something about that now. I think that highlights something that I'm intrigued by from our conversation, which is this duality between the attempt to, to assimilate Aboriginal people into white society and then on the other hand, this kind of racialized um, backlash. How did those two things go together? Because did anyone really manage to, to break over that boundary of race and become actually accepted as a member of white society? And was that even something that would be aspired to? Well, I think uh, a, few, a few people would aspire to that. Um, but generally, people wanted to succeed in white society but not be of it, uh, to remain Aboriginal. And this goes way back. You know, you had people joining the Native Police in the 1840s because 
it had the offer of status. They got to ride horses, had use of weapons. They had lots of food rations and things, but they also used it for their own purposes to extend their power. And I think the same with, with people today. They, they want um, the best that white society can offer, but they want it on their terms, um, maintaining their identity and, uh, and their Aboriginal culture. So I guess there's been a, a big sense as well of um, generational shift in terms of attitudes. Is that fair? Yes, yeah, certainly. I think, um, you know, in my lifetime, um, you know, I, I grew up as a young boy in the 1950s where um, a- Aboriginal people were rarely seen in, in urban areas. Uh, they were seen as other if they were. They didn't have access to uh, a education beyond primary level. Um, there were no Aboriginal professionals, but that shifted after the 1960s when they got civil rights. Um, there was a move then to uh, educate. Uh, this was from both their own desire and also white society saying this is what had to happen. And so by the end of the 20th century, there's a much greater respect starting to be shown. There's uh, reconciliation movements um, emerging, and there's a whole, you know, political awareness about Aboriginal issues and the need to deal with them. Uh, and of course, this this was uh, increased by the decision over native title in a, in 1992, when the High Court of Australia finally decided that colonisation did not erode native title, and that um, and therefore an act was put in place. And since then, there's been a rolling series of claims for country to be returned, either in an exclusive way or a non-exclusive way. Um, and so uh, Aboriginal people are gaining a great deal of power in society. And if you look at their entry into university education, it's quite large now. Many Aboriginal professionals, doctors, lawyers, health workers, etc. Moving into society, not only in their own communities, but in the general society, maybe paying attention to Aboriginal issues. And if we're talking about the memorialisation, as it were, of of this subject, this story that's of agency, but also of exploitation and oppression, how well do you think that Australia deals with that today in 2021? Well, I, I think there's still a residue of people who don't want to change and give you an idea about this, I think about 30% of people didn't see the need for an apology in 2007 over the removal of children from their parents. But 70% of Australians felt this was important. And the reconciliation movement is, is very strong and it's coming from the grassroots. It was initially government-initiated. The Paul Keating government uh, believed after the native title legislation that there needed to be a reconciliation movement. Uh, But now it's driven from below by communities, by churches, by, uh, and now all organisations are having reconciliation plans. Um, The acknowledgement of country um, uh, is uh, in all public meetings. Uh, The Australian anthem has just been changed, so it doesn't say, and we are young and free, which suggests we're a colonising country, 
but we are one and free because Australia has also been changed by becoming one of the most multicultural of countries since the Second World War due to migration. And uh, we have several hundred uh, nationalities now in Australia. Um, many languages are spoken at home. And that multicultural changing of the nation has also had an impact on how black and white relate to each other. So I'm incredibly optimistic now about things. There's still work to be done, but when you compare it to where we were when I was a young boy or even when I was um, a, a young family man, uh, a huge change has occurred. But, look, we still have problems. We've got a closing the gap strategy, which um, shows that schooling, health, mortality, all those things are still still behind for Aboriginal people, and uh, 10 years of effort went to nothing, and now a new strategy is to let Aboriginal people control the whole effort, and hopefully that will be better into the future. Uh, so closing the gap is a problem. Uh, so the socioeconomic uh, situation um, is still a problem. There's still racism to a degree. Um, I think it's a lot better, but it's still there. There's still a lot of work to be done, but, um, you know, things are happening. Uh, the big thing now is Aboriginal people are demanding a voice in Parliament or to Parliament. Uh, so they're not wanting a separate Parliament. There are Aboriginal representatives who have been elected to Parliament. They've got those, but they want a voice that means every piece of legislation of significance in this country has to be also reviewed by Aboriginal people to give them a place at the table in that way. And that's still a work in progress. The government is saying, well, yes, we'll have a, we'll have a discussion on this, we'll have a vote on this, um, but it's still decided whether it's going to be put into the constitution or just a legislative uh, mechanism. On the point of massive change in recent years, your book, Aboriginal Australians, was first published in 1982, and there's been five editions now, the, the fifth edition being published in uh, 2019. And I was just intrigued as to how much change has happened in this area of study and, and historical scholarship in that time. Well, when I began, and I wrote that book, I was uh, invited to do so when I started to teach Aboriginal history. There were few historians interested in the area. Um, some work had been done by anthropologists and, uh, and other people who'd worked with Aboriginal people, like missionaries had written some books and things, but there was very little. Um, the journal Aboriginal History had just started, so I could have put the stuff I used maybe on quite a number of piles along the desk. These days I'd need a, a warehouse to, um, to, to put the, the books and the articles and all the material and the government reports that have been produced about Aboriginal society. And sometimes Aboriginal people get a bit sick of this. They say they're too much studied and there is a real push now um, for them to have much more control in what research is done with them, uh, that they should be leaders in that research um, and so that is, uh, I think, a very important trend that's 
emerged in the last decade, that they've also got a seat at the table about what the studies of them are going to do, what the outcomes might be, and what the the community gets back for those. I was just wondering, are there any uh, stories of of particular individuals that really stuck with you when you're doing your research? Yeah, well, I I love the story about an, an Aboriginal elder in Melbourne Billy Baleri, who actually was one of the signatories of the only treaty ever offered to Aboriginal people. And this was by a private consortium who, um, uh, led by uh, some people from Hobart in Tasmania, uh, business people, and the man that put it in action was John Batman, and it's called the Batman Treaty, and Aboriginal elders signed it. Now, I think Batman saw it as buying land from Aboriginal people and I thought I think the elders saw it as giving permission for a temporary use of land as they always did with visitors um, and so uh, Billy Baleri was one of the signatures of that and he, he was the most important elder in Melbourne in the Melbourne region uh, and he owned an axe head quarry which was the key technological site of the day and he formed a very strong relationship with William Thomas, one of the first Aboriginal protectors. They used to discuss the world and their own cultural ideas with each other around the campfire, etc. So it's, it's really a very warm relationship between them. And Billy Baleri in 1843 asked for land, and that's one of the first requests by Aboriginal people for some land back. And he said, we will farm it like white people. And I think what he was saying was he knew the reality. If you ask for land, they're not going to give it to you if you say you want it for Aboriginal purposes. But if you say you're going to farm, you might get some. And unfortunately, Billy Baleri dies in 1846 from influenza. But I think he's a very uh, key leader in those early years. Um, he's, he's also key in getting good relations going rather than violent relations. And, uh, of course, he's got an aspiration which Aboriginal people never forget and keep pursuing, and it's his own son who asks for land in 1859 and they eventually get Corandirk. So he sets a trend um, where I think Aboriginal people are trying to transform themselves to deal with this crazy new world that they're being faced with. Added on to that, in terms of the civil rights movement of the 20th century, are there any key figureheads of that movement or is it more a collective effort? With the civil rights movement, there were key individuals, um, but there are also groups. So there were, were groups like, uh, for Catsy was the initials, it was the um, federal body for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. There was a, a advancement leagues in all the states pushing for, for more rights for Aboriginal people. But there are a few people. One of them was Charlie Perkins, who became famous because he was taken um, by the Anglicans from Alice Springs with the consent of his mother to be schooled in Adelaide. And then he became a very good footballer ended up going to, to England and playing football in England as well. When he came back, he went to university. He was one of the first Aboriginal um, graduates, did an arts degree at Sydney University, and while there he got in with a group of students who went on a um, their own freedom ride uh, through New South Wales 
inspired by the freedom rides in America, and there they were protesting against things like Aboriginal kids not being allowed to stay in the swimming pool after the school swimming um, session was over. People couldn't drink in the hotels. They couldn't join the return servicemen's club because of these unofficial caste barriers in the town. So he exposed that, and that had enormous publicity in New South Wales, and it was one of those things that people on their TV screen saw, wow, this looks bad, this seems wrong. And so Charlie Perkins later becomes um, the head of the Aboriginal Affairs Department in the federal government after about 20 years in the public service. So he's a, he's a very significant man. And now his daughter is a great filmmaker and makes a lot of really good at films about Aboriginal Australia. So Charlie Perkins is, is one of the standouts. That was Richard Broom. The fifth edition of his book, Aboriginal Australians, A History Since 1788, was published in 2019 by Alan N. Unwin. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Newitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us on Friday when I'll be speaking to Tristram Hunt about the radical potter Josiah Wedgwood. (laughs) 